Colossians 3. We're still in the family code, the household code. Um, we're making our way through that. Today we'll be looking at fathers, and by extension, mothers. Uh, we'll be reading Colossians 3, 18 through 4.1. Hear the word of our God. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. We'll also be going referring back to Ephesians chapter 6, the parallel to this where Paul says this about fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray. Come, O Lord, and stir our hearts. Call us back to yourself. Kindle your fire in us and carry us away. Let us smell your fragrance and taste your sweetness. Let us love you and hasten to your side, even as we hear your word this morning. Christ's name, amen. As I may have mentioned in previous sermons, my dad was not really big on the whole affirmation thing. And so it was a a very pleasant surprise uh, a couple of weeks ago when I got an email from my dad after our visit to New Hampshire. And um, in there, he mentioned briefly, you have very well-behaved children. I'm proud of you. And there was a part of me that was like, oh, my dad's proud of me. That's kind of good. But there was another part of me that said, you know, he saw a snapshot of my family's life. He didn't see the real full movie of our existence. Because there are many times when, yes, my children are well-behaved, and they bring great delight to us. And yet, sometimes it feels like that old Bill Cosby skit from his, uh, his thing himself that goes under the name of brain damage. <laughs> And, and maybe some of you remember this old skit, and, and part of it is he asked his child why he did this thing, which I believe was, why did you cut your sister's hair? And the answer, as usual, is, I don't know. <laughs> That's the brain damage that he talks about, the, how children really don't understand what they do. They act foolishly at times, and they don't even, because they're not thinking through what it is that they're doing. And this whole skit sort of culminates with the bedtime routine as the children go up into the shower, and as he tries to warn them, please, please do what you're told. Let there be no beatings tonight, to which the children sort of almost with a twinkle in their eye, communicate to him, Dear man, don't you understand? We can't go to sleep unless we've had a good beating. (laughs) 
and it sort of unfolds with, you know, a series of children coming down and, and reporting bad things going on upstairs in the shower, particularly having to do with the son Enos, who's, you know, getting me on the behind with a towel, and it all sort of erupts, not with him losing his, his temper, but with his wife. And he tells the, the, the story as though she is wielding a samurai sword w- swinging at the children, and he sits there kind of kicking them back into play like a hockey goalie. <laughs> You know, it's funny when it's a skit like that. It's not so funny when you feel like you're living it. And there are, there are occasionally moments when I feel like I'm living that, when it's just sort of gone over the edge and I'm in this very surreal moment. And in his book, How Children Raise Parents, Dan Allender says this near the beginning. I'm glad you caught that. Because I share the sentiment, particularly in those moments when I want to hide in the bathroom. I am not a good father. I desperately love my children. And I am very troubled by what I have failed to be as a parent. Thankfully, by the grace of God, I don't feel that very often. But there are moments when I do. There are moments when it all seems to fall apart because parenting is very difficult. Our big idea this morning is that Christ is Lord over parents for the good of children. Let's sort of explore this idea from Colossians and Ephesians with some side trips to Deuteronomy, among other places this morning. Let's start with the idea that that Christ calls fathers to consider their children's heart. Okay, sometimes we get very caught up in behavior, but we're, we are to consider behavior, but we are also to consider the heart. Let's get back a little bit to the, the context here of, of, of the culture that Paul is dealing with. And Paul, of course, grew up as a Jew among Jews, and, he, and the, the Hebrew fathers were supposed to be concerned about their children's heart. They were supposed to, as we see in Deuteronomy 10, God told them to circumcise their hearts, and that command was also for their children to remove the stubbornness of their hearts. We saw, as we, we heard, as, as Jerry read from Deuteronomy 6, that these things were to be on their hearts. Okay, it wasn't just follow these laws, but these things would be on your heart, and part of it was to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength. And so it's not just about behavior, but behavior actually flows out, as Jesus said in Mark 7, from the heart. That's where everything starts. And so parents are to consider not just the outward behavior of their children, but the hearts from which that behavior flows. Now, Paul is writing to people who are Gentiles, largely, and people who are in Asia Minor, what we call Turkey now. And so there's a a Greco uh, influence, but there's also sort of this Roman influence because it's it's a Roman colony. It's surrounded by the Roman colonies. And in in Rome, the uh, paterfamilias, as we've talked about, had great powers. Think about this for a moment. He could sell his slave for a period of time only once. He could sell his children repeatedly to pay off his debts. So do you, you recognize the, the power of the paterfamilias, and, but also the abuse of that? 
Imagine selling off your children to pay off your debts. And knowing their term of service over there is up, you, you do it again. And, and Amanda's not excited about this. <laughs> I saw that look towards your dad. Please don't ever sell me into slavery. And, and, and thankfully we can't do that in this country at this time. That was a horrible thing that happened. They could expose the children they did not, the infants they did not want to death. They could treat their sons and daughters with great severity. Children at that point were in many ways seen as an inconvenience, and so they were treated like an inconvenience. And we see a reemergence of this. There was the recent article in Newsweek magazine about purposely childless couples. Those who choose to be childless, not those who, uh, by God's providence, uh, are dealing with infertility, but those who say, I don't want a life with kids. And it's a growing sort of thing. Children, for them, are seen as an inconvenience, standing in the way of their very nice vacations in their really cool houses and vacation homes. They stand in the way of their vocations. Children as an inconvenience. Very similar to how a lot of the people that Paul was writing to may have grown up. For a different magazine, Nancy Gibb, writing in Time magazine, wrote, this is an interesting thought, from the time of the Reformation until the 1830s, most parenting manuals were written for fathers. Before this time, society assumed that mothers were assistant fathers. Now it is assumed that fathers are assistant mothers. There was a time when, and this was the time of, of Paul as well, where once the child got to age six, the father took over most of the, the, the family responsibilities in rearing the child. The father saw to the child's education. He may not have done it himself. He may have entrusted that to servants or slaves, uh, so forth and so on. But the father was seen as the primary parent, not just a breadwinner but was engaged and involved, and something happened. And what's interesting here is that Paul addresses, of course, who? Fathers. And the first thing Paul says to fathers is, do not provoke your children. Now, if you're reading in the ESV or almost any other version, translation of the, of the scriptures, you will see that identical sort of statement. They'll be the same with one another, but actually in the Greek Colossians and Ephesians, though written by the very same person, use different words that are translated provoke. There are times when I wish it said, children, don't provoke your parents. Okay? I don't like those moments when I feel like I'm carrying the samurai sword and I'm swinging away, so to speak. I don't actually have, I do have a samurai sword, but I don't use it when my children are involved. <clears throat> no one has to call CPS on me, okay? All right? Um, you know, and that's the brain damage. It, it drives us as parents crazy. And yet, it doesn't say that because we supposedly are the more mature individuals in that family dynamic. <laughs> and so we are the ones who are to be careful not to provoke our children. So, it has both of these words basically have that idea of to stimulate or to stir up wrath within another person. 
In Ephesians, it's very interesting because Paul uses the the noun form earlier on in his letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 4, uh, verse 26, it says, Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And now, the word that's used at the end there, your anger, is not the noun form of what we see as be angry, but sin not. It's really more connected to what we find here in in chapter 6, verse 1. Do not provoke. Sorry, not verse 1. Verse 3. Do not provoke your children. So it has that idea more of if you're letting, you know, do not let the sun go down on your anger, that idea of bitterness, prolonged anger, kind of holding on to it. And so what it is here is the idea is provoking your children toward bitterness, not just a momentary flare of anger, but to create a bitter child is what's going on here. They were, these fathers and mothers were to exercise their God-given authority in a way that was for the child's good and not their own good. You see, because if you, if you do try to exercise your authority as a parent for your own good, what's inevitably going to happen is you will provoke your children. Because you will be unreasonable and capricious and harsh towards your children. And so, the two extremes essentially are out. There's the one extreme of of micromanaging your children. Some people call it helicopter parenting. I call it supermax prison. You know, because you're 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 on your child for everything. There's nothing they do that's not out of your your uh, your gaze and out out of your decision making and all of this. You're just sort of always on your child. That's really going to provoke them toward anger towards bitterness. But there's the other extreme that is bad as well, that very permissive, passive sort of parenting. Oh, let's just let them grow up naturally. And you know, that's going to provoke your children. And we'll get into that a little bit more. But both of those extremes will provoke your children, and we need to find something closer to the middle in how we parent our children. Why? According to Paul, are we not to provoke them? And he says that lest they become discouraged. Lest they become spiritless. Lest they become disheartened. Lest they become broken in spirit. Now, we all know the difference between a trained horse that follows commands and And a broken horse that's fearful, timid, afraid. There's a difference. Paul wants us to raise kids who are obedient, but who are full of life, full of joy, full of heart, not disheartened not crushed and oppressed by, by their parents. Bitter, angry children have given up on godliness. They give up on the gospel. And so the reality is that bad parenting is largely destructive. It destroys these children that have been placed under the care of the parent for that child's good. 
Good parenting, on the other hand, seeks children who thrive spiritually, who thrive emotionally, who thrive socially. And so one of the things that parenting does is pray. We got to know the heart of our kids. And we need to pray in light of that heart. And so if your, tr- your child struggles with covetousness, you, you start praying about that covetousness for them. As you know, there's other things we'll talk about in a little bit, but, but prayer is very important. If we see that you have a child that perpetually has the log sticking out of their eye and is always looking at the, the speck in someone else's eye, that's something to pray about. They're developing a pharisaical spirit. And so that's something to bring to God in prayer. Not just to the child's attention, but to seek wisdom from our Father. And so Christ calls parents to consider the present and future condition of their kids' hearts. Secondly, Christ calls fathers to commit to what Ted Tripp has called formative instruction. Borrowing a little bit from Paul's brother Ted today. Ephesians, unlike Colossians, explicitly provides the positive command, which is actually implicit in the context of Colossians. Okay? See, in, in Colossians, he says, don't provoke them lest they lose heart. He doesn't say the lest they lose heart part in, in Ephesians. He provides a positive instruction. What, what does it mean to not provoke? It looks like this. And he mentions a few things. What is implicit in Colossians is what is the, the previous context. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And so Paul, either rightly or wrongly, has perhaps assumed they're going to figure out that that applies to parenting. And sometimes we forget those connections in Scripture. We're... We're finite and we're sometimes foolish ourselves, like our children. There's supposed to be that connection, and Paul makes that connection explicit in Ephesians chapter 6. So that's why I'm borrowing from this. Paul says in Ephesians, bring them up. This is the idea of, of bringing someone to maturity. It has that idea of of cherishing someone or something and therefore nurturing that particular person or item. In Ephesians 5, Paul used this very term when he speaks of Christ in the church. And therefore, by implication, husbands toward their wives. Just as Christ nurtures the church, so a man is to nurture his wife, and so parents are to nurture their children. This is a very positive sort of thing. The the idea here is similar to that of a vine, If you want your vine to grow, you have to nurture your vine. You don't build this big shelter over it so no drop of rain and no little speck of sun will get in. You want to make sure they have lots of sun, enough rain, and a little bit of fertilizer. Okay, you're providing, making sure that they have the necessary ingredients for them to grow. That's nurture. Necessary ingredients for growth. Okay. And so what I think this means is that we are to understand as much as possible each child's needs, strengths, and weaknesses. I have four kids. 
they're all different. And I can't treat them all the same. I have to treat them all differently because they're going to struggle in different areas. They're going to have strengths in different areas. And so I, as a parent, though I often fall short, that's what I'm to do. I'm to recognize those differences between them and act accordingly. We'll get to that again when we get to discipline. Okay? But in that book that Dan Allender wrote... One of the things he said is that every child is going to have two main questions in life. They may not verbalize these questions, but these are the the two things going on in their hearts. And the first one that every child is going to have in their heart is, am I loved? Every child has that, needs to have that question answered. And every parent will answer that somehow, some way. Am I loved? We provoke our children precisely when we withhold love and affection from them. I did not grow up in a very affectionate household. If, uh, can't remember who wrote the book, but the love language dude was here. You know, he'd go, Steve, your love language is affection. And it is. I like to hold my kids. I like to pat them on the head, rub their heads. I like to tickle them on the floor or on the bed or wherever we happen to be. I like that physical contact that communicates, I care about you. I am want to engage with you. I, as your father, love you. There's different ways to show that. But when we withhold that love, we provoke our children toward bitterness. Now, again, within the context of Colossians, the old man in in Adam doesn't care about whether or not the, the child feels loved. It only cares about whether I, as the parent, feel loved. Okay, But the new man in Christ has put on this love. We are told by Paul to, because we're, We've put on the new man. We're now to put on love. And that includes love for our children. Expressing and manifesting that love towards our children. Paul continues with this idea of nurturing. We are to nurture them in the discipline of the Lord. Now let's hold off for a second. We tend to think of that word discipline as the negative. Punishment, correction. But this can also refer to education or training. And so that's why I have that idea of formative instruction taking place. That Deuteronomy 6 stuff. Laying the foundation. Deuteronomy 6 is about formative instruction. It's about laying the foundation for that that child's life. Giving them hooks to hang all of life upon. Part of what that means is... Grounding your children in gospel knowledge. That they understand this biblical reality that, that they are sinners. Okay? But not just that. John Newton, toward the end of his life, was losing his, his memory. And, and he said, there's one thing I remember. I am a great sinner. And that Christ is a great Savior. So our kids need to know that, yeah, they are great sinners, but guess what? Jesus is an even greater Savior. 
He's able to save you no matter how much sin you want to stack up. Our kids need to understand this. Because they have a little self-righteous religious fanatic in their hearts. Okay, that's going to want to do things to make up for their sin as opposed to receiving the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So we need to ground them in the doctrine of justification in words in which they can understand that we are accepted by God because of what Jesus did, not by what we do. We need to ground them in that. We need, to, as it says in Deuteronomy 6, to teach these things diligently to our children, not sort of once in a while. It's supposed to be regular, consistent. Not just speaking to them, but also modeling to them. Particularly the gospel responses of faith and repentance. We're to model. If, you're, if your child never hears from you the words, I'm sorry, please forgive me, you're provoking them because you're acting as though you're not a sinner. And they're the only sinner in the household. And I don't think that's true. So sometimes our kids need to hear, I was wrong because we were wrong. The child learns that they are loved by God and loved by their parents despite their behavior, not because of their behavior. And so we do this in things like family worship. Catechism time. We try to, try to drill those truths deep into their hearts. They're not going to get all of it in their heads just yet, but we want to get that kind of hidden away in their hearts, and then when they're older, they go, Oh, yeah! Because he made me, he saved me, he keeps me. That's not it, or all. There are, there are also those teachable moments that happen in the car when you're driving, or when you're working on a project together, or whatever. These, there's these moments that are unplanned that we can, we can put the gospel into real life, connect those things so it's less abstract for them. Without this gospel love, children tend to become bitter and demeaning, or they can become rule-bound Pharisees. And neither of those is really what we're shooting for with our kids. When the word of Christ dwells richly in you, you will be speaking it to your children in love. You won't be able to stop it, in a sense. And so formative instruction, while it includes this gospel knowledge, it's not limited to that. It's also, like we see here in, in Deuteronomy 6, it also talks about the law. We talk to them about gospel practice, creating expectations so that they know right from wrong. Because a child who doesn't know what's right and what's wrong, but gets punished, doesn't really connect the two and gets, gets provoked, becomes bitter because life is unpredictable, so to speak. You, you end up just walking on eggshells not knowing when daddy's going to be mad. So part of the instruction is, what do I expect from you, both positively and negatively? It happens in many ways. 
So, Christ calls us to nurture our children with formative instruction, gospel knowledge. Thirdly, Christ calls fathers, and by extension mothers, to commit to corrective instruction. According to Dan Allender, the second great question of a child's heart is, can I get my own way? We see it at the earliest age. You know, they want to push the boundaries. They want to see how far they can get, how much their agenda will take over the household. Will I get my own way? Am I the one who's in charge here? And so as a result, Paul says in Ephesians 6, we are also to nurture them in the instruction of the Lord. This is corrective instruction. Going back, you know, back into Colossians in, in 3.17, that word admonish, it's, it's the same word there. Okay? We saw it also at the very end of chapter 1 in Colossians. This refers to calling attention to something that's presumably wrong, to rebuke or to warn. And in the, the biography of Plato that we find from the first century B.C., there's an interesting use of this word that illustrates it a little bit to us. <clears throat> For a while, Plato lived in Sicily, and he was in contact with a uh, Sicilian dictator, a tyrant, man of great power and great wealth. And Plato foolishly spoke very candidly to this man. And this man then sold Plato into slavery. See, you've got to learn how to speak to authority. Plato hadn't learned that lesson, so he got sold into slavery. So what happened in Plato, next in Plato's life is that there were a bunch of friends of his who purchased his freedom. See the grace that was there, even though they weren't Christians? They purchased his freedom, and they stick him on a boat to go to Greece. But before he left... They instructed him. They admonished him. They warned him as friends do. Don't repeat the mistake you just made. You don't want to find yourself enslaved again by your foolishness. And so it can mean a very brotherly kind of correction as well. So we we raise them with this. And so corrective discipline kind of grounds kids in gospel practice. It, you know, we're trying to teach them to live like the gospel's, gospel is real, that, that God loves us unconditionally, and yet if we love him, there are boundaries of acceptable behavior. That, that we choose to obey out of gratitude for this great salvation. And so we don't teach our children that grace means you can do anything that you want. We teach them that grace teaches us to say no to unrighteousness and ungodly passions. We begin to teach our kids how to be sanctified. And part of that is that discipline thing that we saw in Hebrews 12. It is the illegitimate or fatherless child who does not experience discipline. Discipline is a sign, or is intended to be a sign of love. 
And that's part of what I try to communicate to my kids. I'm not always good at it. But I do this because I love you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't care what you did. But I love you, so I care what you do. Who you are. What matters to you. And so formative and and corrective instruction are meant to be tied together. It's not do one or the other, but we're meant to do both. It's like the two wings of an airplane, which Steve Boyer, if he was here, would say, no, Steve, it's one wing, okay? But you you can only have, uh, you have to have the wing on both sides of the airplane. You can't have it on just one side, okay? That's what happens when you have a aerospace engineer in the congregation. You've got to think about these things. Okay? You cannot have just one or the other. You've got to have them both. The absence of one will inevitably provoke your children. And if we go back to the vine, the, the, the fertilizer and the sunlight and the watering, that's all nurturing. But in order to have a really healthy vine, you also have to prune it. That's the corrective discipline keeping it from going places it shouldn't go so that what does, is there is healthy and alive and full. Okay? Discipline sort of must be measured and appropriate. Okay? It must not be excessive or sort of meaningless. If, if you know, that saying, if you're a hammer, everything's a nail, you know? If, if you have a samurai sword or a yardstick that you think is a ham- samurai sword, that, you know, all of your discipline issues are not handled in one way. There are many ways that discipline can take form, take shape. Some of that changes as children age. You know, if, if you believe in spanking children, and I'm not saying anything in case CPS ha- you know, wants to, you can talk to me privately, Okay. But you know what? You don't spank a 14-year-old girl. You don't put her over your knee. That's not appropriate. What might be appropriate for a 4-year-old girl is not necessarily appropriate for a 14-year-old girl. But part of what parenting does is finds what works with that child. Okay? I don't want to talk too much about my kids this morning because I don't want them to feel bad. There's some for whom the removal of the privilege of a snack is nearly devastating. You will get almost instantaneous compliance with that. There are others for whom that is big deal. But if you say the words, no TV after lunch, now you're talking their language. Okay? So you, you, you learn, in a sense, the idols of your children. <laughs> and you use them to your advantage. That is the lever that gets their attention. If you keep doing the same thing that has, and it has no effect on the child, the child doesn't care, essentially. You're not being a very wise parent. You have to find that thing that engages their heart, that gains their attention, and now you've got some somewhere. No books. No trip to the library. For some children, that gets their attention. Other children, ah, big deal. So, you know, wise parenting finds that. 
because it wants to get to the heart of the child. Often, unfortunately, our own sin sort of gets in the way. And sometimes we need to confess because we've lost it. I wish I was there when this happened. When I was at General Assembly, Amy and the kids were up in North Carolina visiting with uh, four other friends of ours and all of their kids. So here you have four women, nine kids, and one husband who wants to be somewhere else, I think, because he's surrounded by estrogen, you know? Anyway, um, one of the moms was very frustrated because the daughter had misplaced the Kindle. And so she kind of came over and was like, very softly, very softly, you need to find the Kindle now. And then she goes to the other ladies and she apologizes it. She goes, I'm sorry. I'm about to lose it. (laughs) And all of them are like, that is about to lose it. (laughs) You know, this very soft-spoken, gentle sort of thing. Okay, when we really lose it, (laughs) we need to apologize. And there, unfortunately, have been times I've had to apologize to my kids because I've lost it. The pruning. Scripture is clear about the pruning. There's so many things in Proverbs about the pruning. For instance, Proverbs 13, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. doesn't mean you have to discipline him in only one way or a particular way, but the idea is discipline. Love disciplines the children that they love. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will delight, uh, give delight to your heart. You find that in Proverbs 29, verses 15 and 17. We could read more, but we won't. What happens is that if we don't disciple or discipline our children, they become dangerous to other people. Because they don't know where the boundaries are. They don't know what no means. They don't know what stop means. And they become dangerous. Let's kind of, I've gave you a little grid there that has those two great questions. And so if we answer the question about love that you are not loved, but we say that you can get your way, meaning we don't discipline our, or don't correct our children, then you create a dangerous and demeaning person, a sociopath. Who here wants to raise a sociopath? I didn't think so. Well, If you don't communicate consistent love to your child and you don't say no to your child, you're going to raise one. Have a nice day. If you say that you are not loved, but that you can't get your own way, you don't express consistent love for your child, but you do discipline, chances are you will get the rule-bound child. You'll, You'll raise a Pharisee. It's all about the rules and there's no love. Pharisee. If you answer the the love question, yes, yes, you are loved. But you answer the other question, you can do what you want. You raise a child that is uh, spoiled. You've been an indulgent parent. There's distance there. And a perfect example in, in Scripture is Absalom. David loved Absalom, but David would not correct Absalom. 
And Absalom ended up leading a rebellion against his father. He was loved, but he was never told no. What we kind of want is to communicate, you are loved and you can't get your own way. And as I look at Scripture, generally what I, what I see there is David. Even though David wasn't the best parent, he must have been parented fairly well, or at least by God. Because even when David failed, he repented. He wasn't perfect, but he repented. David was engaged with his God. He knew his God loved him, and he loved his God. He delighted in him. So corrective instruction should be, as I said, consistent, not sort of capricious. Your your child should not be kind of unaware of when this thing should happen, when the hammer should drop, because they should recognize the difference between right and wrong, because you've expressed certain things in your household that will not be tolerated. Must be measured and appropriate, not excessive and meaningless, so to speak. I've kind of talked about that already. Don't know why I'm saying it again. But both forms of instruction are necessary. Again. But they're also insufficient. Just because you do formative instruction and corrective instruction does not mean that your child will be perfect, will be godly, because there is that matter of their own hearts. They have to heed the instruction. They have to welcome the rebuke. And Proverbs is kind of clear about that, that that the foolishness that's in the heart can reject the rebuke and the admonition. And so you can do all of it right, and that doesn't mean your child will grow up right. And so it brings us to our knees. Because ultimately, it's only God who actually produces a godly child. Okay, uh, Proverbs is not a guarantee. You know, raise up a child in the way it will go, and you will not depart from it. That's not a guarantee. It's not a prescription. It's a generalism that we find in Proverbs. So don't, th- don't please don't think that if I just do parenting the right way, my child will turn out right. And therefore, thinking. Huh, that child didn't turn out right. The parents must have goofed. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they did everything right. But maybe their child's heart was so uncircumcised that they refused to listen to their parents. So that ought to caution us and also comfort us. The Spirit must work. And so parenting is exasperating at times. Because there's an intersection of their depravity and their immaturity with our own depravity. (laughs) Okay? And it may seem sometimes like we're being punished as the parents. But God's plan really is for the parenting to result in good for both the parents and the children. may not seem that way in the heat of the day, but that's the way it really is. And it should drive both parents and children to Christ to seek grace And so we seek the children's well-being through form of instruction, which includes gospel knowledge. We seek their well-being through corrective instruction in teaching them gospel practice. And so the hope is that both parents and children learn, essentially, that the gospel's real. That the gospel matters in how I live each day. Let's pray. Father, 
These are, in a sense, some of the sermons I hate preaching, precisely because I need them so desperately. My own folly is exposed by your word. And many of us probably have that sense this morning of having failed. And yet, um, the gospel gives us hope to get up and keep walking. So, Father, help us not to feel uh, or, or, or to sense or hear condemnation, but a call to try again by your grace to receive your pardon, to receive your empowerment, to recognize the ways in which we should parent a little differently than perhaps we've been parenting thus far. Continue to instruct us, for this was just a flyby. Be with us in the, in the ditches, in the details of parenting, because we desperately need your help. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.